Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please get them open to Mark chapter 7. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. You get to page 893. Uh, you'll join us there at the start of Mark chapter 7. I want to thank you all for being here. And I'm betting uh, there's one topic I could bring up to anybody in Terre Haute right now that would make everybody feel tired. And it's tree cleanup. Right, the image of down limbs and brush piles burning and chainsaws going and parts of trees hanging over roads and power lines down and power outages and more. We've had our fill of this, have we not? I see the storms that rolled through at the end of June left quite a mark. And, and I, I realized uh, like a day after that all the damage that was experienced, all of it was done by falling trees. But I've had a thought go through my head several times, and I'm wondering if you've had the same thought, right? As I walk through uh, either my yard or somebody else's or a park or uh, drive down a road, and I, I see two trees right next to each other, right? Trees that, that went through the exact same storm, experienced the exact same winds, and one of them is completely decimated, and the other one looks like nothing happened at all. And it got me thinking, how does that happen? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized how simple it was, right? The variable was not in location. They're right by each other. The variable was not even in the strength of the storm. They faced the same storm. The variable was in the tree themselves. It was something inside, something in their root system, something, maybe it was age, maybe it was disease, maybe they're rotting out, something that made one tree unable to withstand the storm and another one able to. We humans, we face a lot of different variables in this life, right? Your life and your successes and your failures and your challenges and your joys and your trials and your strengths and weaknesses, they're all going to look different than mine. But there is one constant that runs through it, and it's that storms are coming. Nobody gets through this life scot-free. Nobody escapes without pain. I heard a pastor once say, everybody has a story, and every story involves pain. You see, it's in the storm that our root system is tested. The thing that we trust in, the thing that we bank on, the thing that we're relying on, the belief system that we've built our entire life around, the question is, how does it hold up in the storm? And by the way, there's, there's no greater challenge and no greater threat than, than what we'll ever face, than what we're going to face after this life. Right, the moment after, like Hebrews 9 says this, just as it's appointed for people to die once and after this, judgment. That's scarier than anything you're going to face in this life. On earth, our life on earth will come to an end. That day is coming. And when it does, we are going to stand before a holy, awesome God. And we have to give an account for what we did. We have to give an account for how we lived and what we said and what we thought and what we trusted in. And the most important question that you'll ever ask yourself is this, are you ready for that day? Do you have confidence as you think forward to that day? Will what you're living for right now, will the things that you're pursuing right now, the things that you're trusting and banking on right now, are they going to help you at all in that day? Now, I'm thankful that you're all here today, and we've been going through the book of Mark as a church, and, and we're starting chapter 7 uh, today because we concluded chapter 6 last week, right? That's how we're going through this book. And, and what we're going to see at the start of chapter 7 this morning is a confrontation, right? It's a real, tense confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders, and it, it's a collision, really, and the collision will actually be between two vastly different worldviews. Because Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders will bring vastly different approaches to God and vastly different belief systems, even though you'd assume that Jesus being a Jewish rabbi would have good starting ground with them. And one of these 
right? As you compare the two, one of these will clearly stick out above the other, and one will prove to itself to be the only real answer. And so if you're searching for an answer to all of life's storms, right, if you're looking for confidence even in the face of death itself, if you hope to have a solution that trumps every drop of suffering, then I'm really glad you're here today because I want to show you how we can find that in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to invite Ruth Peelman up to read today's passage. She's going to be reading for us Mark chapter 7, verses 1 uh, through 13. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning. morning. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not, do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as, doctrine, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would, you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Thank you, Ruth. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, this morning for this chance to gather. We're grateful for your word, and as we look to it now, we pray that you, Lord, would illuminate it. God, that you uh, would teach it, that you'd be the loudest voice in this room, and you get the glory from all of this. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You have a seat. Now, there's a mistake, I think, that we can easily make uh, with this passage, right? Since we're centuries removed from it, since we're in a different culture and climate, and, and since we, when we come to scriptures, we simply read them, right? There's not a live action play. We don't see it play out. Uh, it's quite easy, the mistake that we can make, is to miss just how contentious this exchange is. I mean, you could cut the tension with life. This is, this is high, high tense stuff. Last week, I quoted John 10 to you, uh, where Jesus says, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Right? Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. There's a couple reasons Jesus made that statement, right? First of all, just the audacity to call in advance his own death and resurrection. And, but the second reason is he's claiming control over it before it happens. And one of the reasons he needs to do that is because there are going to be others there who look like they're, they're running the show. Right? The religious leaders of his day will be behind the scenes, working the entire scene, and they'll be there every step, overjoyed at his suffering and his death. Because they hated him that much. And the, part of the reason why they hated him was because exchanges just like what we read here. And, and it might look at first like this came out of Noah, but really, if you've been with us through the book of Mark, you know that this confrontation has been building for some time. 
And there's a detail in verse 1 that you might miss if you just read and keep going on. It says that Pharisees and some of the scribes had come from Jerusalem and gathered around Jesus. And that, that seems innocent enough, right? But this is not the first time we've seen this in Mark. All throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus is being continually confronted, questioned, and accused by a group Mark writes as the scribes and Pharisees who'd come down from Jerusalem. And so get this, I want you to understand this pattern. Jesus has become such a big deal that the religious leaders in his days are so threatened by him and that everywhere he went, there was a contingent of them from Jerusalem, sent from Jerusalem to watch and listen to everything he did. And they weren't there to learn. They weren't there to, to figure out, oh, is he onto something that we've missed? They weren't there to show him honor. They weren't there to verify him. They were looking for any slip up that they could criticize, anything to scrutinize, anything to accuse him of, any chance that he'd make a mistake, and they would pounce on it and try to run his reputation to the ground. Now, can you imagine having that toxicity around you all the time? Imagine just the, the pressure and frustration and just growing, just kind of frustration that you'd have with this group. You'd be so weary and tired of their existence in your life. And it's why I think on first read, it sure looks like Jesus is the aggressor in this conversation. Right? I mean, they, the Pharisees ask the question, hey, why don't your disciples wash their hands for they eat? And Jesus is like, Isaiah prophesied correctly about all you hypocrites. You're like, whoa, right? I mean, that escalated quickly. But when you understand how this has been festering and building, when you understand that part of Jesus' purpose is to take this head on, it no longer seems like an escalation. Because for far too long, the Jewish leaders had misrepresented God to his people. For far too long, they'd made it about themselves, and what they trampled in the process was people. They'd lost any heart of a genuine worship of God, and what has been left in its place is a rigid, soulless, self-seeking, burden-loaded, egotistical religion. So Jesus didn't come to help enlighten them on a few errors and suggest they make a couple adjustments. No, he came to change everything. And to bring people to God. And at the heart of it, he, Jesus and the Jewish leaders had a fundamental disagreement on what mattered most. They had opposing views of salvation. Remember I started talking about the day that we're going to stand before the Lord, having to give an account, needing to have an answer for that. Well, give the Jewish leaders this much credit. They'd formed an answer to that. It wasn't the right one. But they'd formed an answer to it, and they'd built an entire system around it. And, and it starts with their understanding of Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God establishes his covenant with Abram, and here's what it says. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, from this covenant, right, God established that Abram or Abraham's descendants would be his people. He set them apart to be his people, and he would give them his law, and he would call them to be set apart to him, and, and, they, and that through him, we see here in Genesis 12, that he would bring the Messiah. That's why verse 3 says that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, because it's through the Messiah, through Jesus' son, that, that we all, Jew and Gentile alike, gain access to salvation, but a part of the covenant is this, that if they were faithful to the Lord 
If they walked in his ways, if they observed his laws, he would bless them and make them prosperous and protect them. But throughout their history, they were unfaithful. It's the entire story of the Old Testament of, of the people of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord and judgment comes and they repent and call out to them and he restores and redeems and saves them again and then they're unfaithful and then the cycle goes on and on and on until Jesus arrives. But by the time Jesus has arrived, here's how they had twisted this. They believe this, that being a descendant of Abraham guaranteed that they were good with God. So in that framework, salvation is a birthright that comes to them through heritage. It doesn't, it doesn't require any kind of faith or anything. It comes to you through your birth. And so instead of striving to live lives set apart by the things the New Testament call for, like righteousness and purity of heart, they instead said, we are exclusive and superior and unique already. And so we're going to create a system of traditions and practices that only we will do that we're meant to show the world just how exclusive and set apart we are from you. Not to God, but from others. Here's how Mark puts it in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not, do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So you need to understand that in their worldview, the only way, if salvation's a birthright, I'm already unique and separate, right? The only way to devour yourself is to break the tradition of the elders. Not break God's law, not break God's commands, but to break any of the man-made additions. And you can see this in the language in verse 5. Listen, listen to what the Pharisees asked Jesus. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the word of the Lord? It's not it, is it? Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? Right? For them, salvation's a birthright. And in that, the Jewish leaders and their traditions became the authority. Right? So it was, it was so important that you follow these traditions because you are a part of this chosen club. And in that, they even elevated themselves above God's actual commands. Jesus gives one such example, starts in verse 9. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. Right? So he's saying, you're setting your tradition over God's command. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of your father, or father and mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. That's a powerful line. You nullify the word of God by your tradition. So did you understand the example we said there? God commands his people to honor and care for their parents, especially as they, they get older. But the Pharisees and the scribes in their tradition, they came in and they've added a loophole. And the loophole was this. They said that someone could dedicate their wealth to God. So I was going to take whatever money I was going to use to take care of my parents, and I could call that Corbin and dedicate it to God. And when I did that, that wealth could then only be used for quote-unquote spiritual purposes. And if I did that, then I would no longer have to help care for my aging parents because I've given this money for spiritual purposes. Well, guess who got access to that money? Scribes and the Pharisees. They created a loophole that they benefited from. They set up a scam while people suffered. 
And in this system where the religious leaders are elevated and their rules have more authority than even God's commands, the only way to defile yourself is not by disobeying God, but by disobeying the religious leaders. The worst crime you could commit is to violate their rules and their traditions and their ways, which is why it drove them nuts that Jesus and his disciples did not live by their traditions. Because no one before Jesus had ever so blatantly rejected their authority. And Jesus did so for a couple of reasons. Number one, they have no authority over him. But number two, because he viewed things completely different than them. Do you remember the role that was given to John the Baptist? His ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah, right? And his, the message, the ministry, and the gospel of the Messiah. And so he had a ministry of repentance. Here's what he, Matthew 3 records John saying. John said, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance and don't presume to say to yourselves, here it is, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. John's message to prepare the way for Jesus was one of repentance. That word means to turn, to turn from your sin, to turn from everything that you're banking on and trusting in and turn all that instead to Jesus. And he called it right out. He told the Jewish people, stop banking on the fact that you're a descendant of Abraham. Because your heritage, your lineage, it doesn't buy you anything. What buys you anything with the Lord is a posture of faith and brokenness and repentance. That's what brings one to God. And this is where Jesus broke so clearly from the Jewish leaders. He established the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, there is no human above any other. We are all equal in value regardless of genealogy. So every one of us, Jew or Gentile, has been made in the image of God, which gives us each tremendous value and worth. All human life is sacred because of this. But we're not just equal in value, we're equal in problem. All humans have the same problem. And for Jesus, our defilement, right, our great problem is not that we don't follow traditions set up by men. Our problem is sin, It's when we disobey the commands and designs of a holy God, and we all have this problem. I was clear in this, Romans 3, listen language, for all have sinned, every one of us, and therefore we fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, here's the result of that, the cost, the wages of our sin is death. That's the reality. Which makes it all the more powerful that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is clear. Our authority is not man. Our authority is God. Our authority is not in tradition. Our authority is in God's word. He is the creator. He's the designer. He knows best. And our defilement is when we sin and break God's commands. And our salvation is not in our heritage. It's not in religion. It's not in following rules. Our salvation is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Which is why Jesus' solution is the only one that works. I mean, think of it. If I'm the problem... It's not a great strategy to have me be the solution. And the problem is that I'm a sinner. And it's not, it's not I don't, when I say that, it's not that I'm saying that I've sinned and therefore I'm a sinner. I sin because I'm a sinner. It's who I am. It's what I'm prone to. It's what I'm drawn to. So without any effort at all, we'll just sin. That's who we are. And therefore, we need an answer and a solution that is beyond us. And so any type of religious answer, which is like follow these rules and say these prayers and keep these traditions and fit in these boxes, they're woefully insufficient to solve my problem. And in addition to that, they don't even address the root issue of everything. They don't address the fact that my heart is rebellious towards God. Look what, look what Jesus said about these very leaders who are following all these traditions perfectly in verse 6. 
He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. That's a devastating blow. You're running around teaching as if it's God's doctrine, all your little traditions and rules and human commands, and in doing so, you honor me externally, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts don't belong to me at all. But I want you to notice the stark difference in God's solution. Notice how great an answer we have in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, that God, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God sent his son Jesus to become a man and Jesus faced all that we faced but did not sin so that then when he goes to the cross, the one who did not know sin could be sin for us so that he could serve as a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. In Romans 5, God proves his own love for us in this, that while we, we are still sinners, Christ the sinless one died for us. Jesus suffered and died on the cross to pay the price for sins of any who believe in him. And when we do, we are forgiven in full by God. He sees us as fully righteous and sinless despite being sinful. Look at the trade again in 2 Corinthians 5. He took the one who did not know sin, so Jesus sinned this and gets all my sin put on him. And what I get as a sinner in exchange is the righteousness of God credited to me. Praise the Lord. Our, our great problem is our sin. It's the reason that we die. It's the reason that we're separated from the God who made us. It's the reason that if it's not paid for, when we stand before God, that we will be guilty and spend all eternity in hell. But God proves his love for us in this, that he sent the sinless, spotless, precious son to, on, to the cross to pay my price. And if I believe in him, what I get is Jesus' righteousness applied to me. So what that means is this, that when I stand before God at the end of my life, I'm going to plead one thing and one thing only. I put my faith and my trust in Jesus who died for me, and that's it. There's no other solution. There is no other answer out there that works because in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. In Jesus alone, can we be made right with God? In Jesus, do we have the promise of eternal life? In Jesus, do we have the love of God that's been proven? In Jesus, do we have a solution to all suffering? In Jesus, do we have the answer to everything that plagues us? And only in Jesus, do we have the ultimate victory that cannot be taken from us? And we see him here confronting the Jewish leaders because not only were they set up a system that they were the beneficiaries of, but even worse, they were teaching things that would make it harder for people to experience the love and grace and freedom and deliverance that he was going to provide. They were getting in the way. And by the way, today we're not actually that different from them. Human beings have never evolved as much as we like to proclaim to borrow a phrase from Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun. We still have people using God and faith to take advantage of others. You don't have to look very far to find it. We still elevate human traditions over God's word. We still elevate human opinion over the authority of God's word. We still walk in hypocrisy, declaring a belief in God but never actually surrendering our hearts to him. We do this all the time. And when we do, we are on a path towards a confrontation with Jesus the same way these religious leaders discovered it. So how can we avoid those things? How can we stay out of the path of confrontation with Jesus? Well, a couple of things I think will help us. And the first is this, is simply just turn to the only real answer. It's been the theme of the morning, but we humans have a major problem. 
And in light of that, far too many of us turn to insufficient solutions that don't actually fix anything. And I believe that at the heart of every insufficient solution, at the heart of every false teaching, is the same thing, a great misunderstanding of the problem. And that we vastly overestimate our own goodness and vastly underestimate our problem. That's the mistake on display here in Mark 7. The Jewish leaders thought they were good. They thought they were good with God because of something like heritage, because of something like birthright. And it led them to making all kinds of wrong conclusions. Many make the same mistake today. Vastly overestimate our goodness. We think we're good with God because of we think there's some kind of scale that our good will outweigh our bad, or because we went to church, or because we were baptized as a baby, or because some some ceremony was performed over us. And so in that, I'm gonna make all kinds of bad decisions based on a false conclusion. And in doing so, I'm underestimating my problem. Which is why we need to come to grips with the reality that the Bible is clear on, that God is holy and awesome and terrifying, that he's the creator, that he's the authority. And when I sin, what I'm doing is breaking his design and commands. And in doing so, I'm living in outright rebellion to the highest of power in the universe. Which is why John 3 says that those who have not believed in Jesus, their state is they stand condemned already. Colossians 1 says that because of my evil thoughts and actions, I am an enemy of God. Ephesians 2 says that before I'm in Jesus Christ, I belong to the ruler of the air who's who's opposed to everything that God is about and that the wrath of God is stored up and waiting on me. Are you starting to see the problem? My sin is the greatest issue that I face. It's a far greater threat than anything. And we need to come to the full confrontation with this truth that this morning, Brett Parks, I deserve death in hell. That's what I've earned. That's what my life has bought me. That's what is just and fair if God were to treat me that way. And the only way that I can avoid that faith, fate is by someone far greater than me and far more powerful than me and someone who is incredibly gracious to me who will save me from my sin and despair. And that is why the precious, amazing, all-powerful, and all-gracious Son of God hung from a cross and suffered excruciatingly. It's why there's salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. Because no one else is capable of paying our price. No one else is capable of saving us, especially not ourselves. And coming to grips with who I am as a sinner and what I deserve because of that keeps me from getting prideful. It protects me from settling for solutions that aren't solutions at all. And it points me to the only real answer out there, which is Jesus. In the book of Matthew, we find the Sermon on the Mount. It's the largest section, single section of Jesus' teaching at one time in the Bible. And do you remember how Jesus wrapped that thing up? Matthew 7, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Two houses, two identical storms. One stood and the other didn't, and the difference is Jesus. Storms are coming. The day that you stand before God is coming. 
Is what you're living for now, is what you're banking on, is what you're trusting, is it, is it up to the test? Because only in Jesus Christ can you build on the rock. Only Jesus provides an answer to every storm. Only Jesus saves souls. Only Jesus forgives sins. Only Jesus grants eternal life. He is the only real answer that lays before us. So have you trusted him? If you haven't, if you haven't called out in faith in to save you, do so today. And if you have, I have a, a really simple encouragement for you this morning. Live like that's true. Live your life like Jesus Christ is the only real answer. Live your life as if all of us who are in him have been bought the victory by him because that's true. But are you living like it's true? Do you, do you go about your days as one whose sins have been forgiven? Because you know how Psalm 32 describes that? Psalm 32 says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Does that define you at all? How is it that, that Christ's gospel, how is it that his suffering on your behalf, how is it his victory, how is it those things have actually changed your life? Do you suffer well? Looking, like knowing that ultimately he has the answer, do you, do you try to, to praise him in the midst of the storm? Do you try to, to make sure he gets the glory from him? Or are you marked by groaning and complaining and bitterness? Do you live selflessly knowing that he made it all about you on the cross so that you never have to make it all about you again? Or does everyone need to bow to your preferences and commands? Do you share the hope that can be found in Jesus knowing that everybody you know needs that hope? Or do you burn through your influence on politics or sports or news or music or movies or something far lesser? Do you willingly sign up for cost for God's kingdom knowing that all you'll be doing is merely carrying the cross for someone who carried a cross for you already? Or is your faith more defined by consumerism? Do you live generously and open-handed knowing how open-handed God has been to you? Are you more defined by stinginess? Are you patient and forgiving because of God's immense long-suffering patience with you and free-flowing forgiveness to you? Or do you keep a record of wrongs and make sure everyone know how bitter and how much grudges you hold? Do you pursue him because of the amazing way he pursued you? Or does it go, do you go days and weeks and months without him ever hearing from you? It's really simple. Jesus Christ is the only real answer. If you haven't trusted him, do so. But if you have, then live like the grace and forgiveness and mercy and life you've been given are real because they are. They should be transformative. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your son did not come to make a few minor adjustments to a system. He didn't come to tell the religious leaders of his day, you're, you're getting so much right, just correct a couple things here. But God, he came to change everything. He came to be the perfect fulfillment of the law that humans had failed to fulfill for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And then he came to be our substitute, to be our sacrifice, to pay our price on the cross, offering grace, offering forgiveness, offering the free gift of eternal life for any who would believe in him. And so I pray, Lord, for anybody in this room who's never come to the confrontation with the reality that what they deserve is death, what they deserve is hell, and, and if it's based on their efforts, that's exactly what they're going to get. 
And they've never called out to you and trusted in you and in you alone to save them. Lord, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. They would see the immense love and grace that Christ had for them to suffer in their place and that you would save their souls. Father, for the rest of us who've experienced that, Lord, we know what it is to have our sins forgiven. We know what it is to have our transgressions covered. We know what it is to have the gift of eternal life waiting for us. Lord, I pray that we would live like those things are true. We'd live as people who've actually been freed. We'd live as people who've actually been forgiven. We'd live as people whose, whose graciousness and patience and mercy and generosity and things flow off of us because of how good you've been to us. If there's any way that we're not, I invite your spirit to just put your finger on areas of each of our lives that are displeasing to you. And may we surrender those to you in repentance this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We'll give you a couple moments just to spend between